0: The scripture reading for today is Acts 9, 1 through 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, welcome everybody. My name's Dan Myers and I am the pastor of New Creation Church in Burbank, which is a sister church to you guys. We're in the same denomination. And so it is great to be here with you today. Uh, I think our churches actually launched the same week. And so Tim and I have been friends through all that, and uh, it's wonderful to be able to be with you guys today and, uh, and give you God's word. So let's dig in. The story that you just heard is probably the most famous conversion story in the Bible. We see a murdering monster completely transformed into a vessel of God's love And truth, and on mission for God's kingdom. It's the story of the Apostle Paul, who was also known as Saul. And so you'll probably hear me use those names interchangeably. It's the same guy, Paul and Saul. So as we listen to and dig into this radical story today, it's a story of transformation, and I want you to listen for how change comes about. So let's dig into the story. Uh, What's been happening prior to uh, what we just read is Saul has been ravaging the church. In Jerusalem, he was going house to house, arresting people. If you remember uh, a little bit earlier, uh, Stephen, one of the first deacons, is martyred. He's the first Christian martyr. And Saul was there and approved of the killing. And so what Saul wants to do now is he wants to get get ahead of this thing. So after Stephen is martyred, the church begins to scatter, to scatter all throughout the land. And so Paul says, all right, we got to jump on this. I'm going to go and see if I can get ahead of where it's scattering and come in from the backside and shut this thing down. And so he goes to the high priest and he asks for a letter. He says, I want a letter from the high priest so that I can go from synagogue to synagogue with the authority to arrest anyone proclaiming the name of Jesus. I can arrest them right in the synagogue and I'll bound them and send them back to Jerusalem for trial. He says, anyone belonging to the way it's your namesake right the way of salvation the way of life anyone belonging to the way those Jesus people I want to arrest them bound them up and send them back to Jerusalem now why would Saul do that why would he do that well he had a different set of beliefs Saul believed that God would never become human. Saul couldn't imagine a world where the temple system was done away with. He believed in a Messiah that would come in power and in strength. And what does he find? He finds a Messiah who was killed on a cross, he sees a Jesus who died in weakness, and that was offensive to him. Maddening. And it had to be stopped. And so, as he's going out, he heads towards Damascus to get ahead of this thing. He's en route to wreak havoc on the church, on the way, and he has this experience of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at verses 3 and 4. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he's on this road, and, and a Spotlight from heaven comes upon him. It's so bright it knocks him over. He falls to the ground. And what does he hear? Verse 5 tells us this. He said, who are you, Lord? And what he hears is this voice. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Wow! What an encounter There's this repetition in the call of his name Saul, Saul The repetition conveys emotion The call is one of rescue It's not one of judgment Heaven reaches down And touches earth It calls Saul. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice he hears is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so in this, we see this incredible solidarity between Jesus and his church. To persecute the church, Jesus says, is to persecute him. Jesus is the head Of the church. So if you are attacking the the body, you are attacking its head. Now there's a group of men with Saul. Let's take a look at verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So this incredible event, this incredible light knocking them down. Everyone is stunned. But what's interesting is they, the other men heard the voice, but they did not see Jesus. They were still blind to the truth. And so what happens is Saul, on this road, has this collision with Jesus. It's like a traffic accident. He runs into him. You see, Paul had constructed his own God in many ways. And I think that so many people in Los Angeles do the same thing. Tim Keller is, uh, is great on this topic. He talks about how people will say, you know, I, um, I have a God that loves all the things that I love. I have a God who holds all the same values that I do. And here's the problem. If that is your God, you are just looking in a mirror. That is a God constructed. And here's the problem. If you worship a God that you have constructed, that God can be no help to you. That God cannot save you. And that's the problem. And so, Paul crashes head-on into the reality of a God who is different than he thought. He encountered a God that he could say, you know what, I don't like everything that you say. I don't like everything that you do. He encountered a God that tells him things about himself he doesn't like. And guess what? That is a good sign. Because that means you haven't constructed that God. It means that that God is bigger than you. And guess what? That is real. That's a real God. Because you know what? That's how relationship works, isn't it? I am married To my wife, Kirsten, we've been married for uh, 24 years. We've got three daughters. And I'll tell you, relationship means sometimes they say things to me I don't want to hear. Right? And guess what? That's good for me. Because if I come home and there's never any challenge, there's never any conflict, you know what my family is? They would just be cardboard cutouts. And that's what a constructed God is that can't challenge you, that can't offend you. It's just a cardboard cutout. But what Paul experiences is the real God. And when it happens, his soul is shaken. He's brought to the ground. His legs are cut out from under him. The ground he's been standing on is sinking sand. Reality is not what he thought. His identity has been shaken. Right? He sees himself as the obedient Pharisee. He says, I'm good at being good. And this crash collision shows him something very different. His belonging has been shaken. Right? I'm part of this this Jewish community. But this crash with Jesus says, not anymore. His purpose has been shaken. He's gone out with power and control on mission to rid the world of Christians. Let's take a look at verse 8. Verse 8 tells us, Saul rose from the ground after he's been knocked down, after he's been shaken. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. His eyes are opened to the truth. And yet, the glory of the living Jesus has blinded him physically. He cannot see but for the first time he can see with his heart Uh, a few years back i got an opportunity to do some prison ministry and i went into a section of this prison that were uh, men serving life sentences and in that section there were men who came to faith and i remember the line of this one man that i met with he said I had to come to prison in order to be free. Imagine that. Experiencing real freedom for the first time while in prison. Same here for Paul. He's blind but he can finally see. He can see Jesus. And so he now has to be led By the hand. He was first entering Damascus in power and in strength. And now he's like a little child being led by the hand to this city. He enters in humility now and weakness. Let's see what he does. Let's take a look at verse 9. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he's in darkness. He's in darkness for three days. He doesn't eat or drink. Now maybe he's intentionally fasting to go, I wanna clear every distraction of the world so I can just think for a moment. Maybe he's had such an emotional experience, he can't even bring himself to eat. Either way, you know what he's doing? He is thinking. Let's just sit inside the mind of Paul for a moment. What do you think is going through his mind during that period of time? Well, what I think is he's he's trying to process. He's trying to make sense of the scriptures that he's always known, but now in light of Jesus, in light of the cross and the resurrection. And so he has to go back, and he thinks to Genesis, the promise that God will crush the head of the serpent with the seed of Eve, that seed, that's Jesus. He thinks to Abraham, you will be blessed to be a blessing. You will bless all the families of the earth. How will that happen? Jesus. He thinks to Moses, the law, the Ten Commandments, that's a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of his faithfulness. He thinks to David, the king, who will rescue God's people. That points to Jesus. And so he's got these three days where he just reprocesses the whole story and connects it now to Jesus. And I think in those three days, he's maybe really praying for the first time, in that he's experiencing intimacy with God. I think before that, he probably said his prayers, but now he is really praying. He's praying from the heart. And I think also in that time, there is worship happening. He is blown away by who this God is. There's gratitude happening. I've experienced grace and mercy. And I think he's praying for direction. What now? My purpose has been totally changed. Lord, what do you want me to do now? And of course, praying for healing, right? I can see, but I can't see with my physical eyes. Well, then he is introduced to a man named Ananias. Ananias is a disciple. He's a member of the way. And God gives Ananias a vision. He tells Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. And he actually gives him the exact location where he's at. Here's the street address, and it's actually still there today straight street and there you will find Saul praying and guess what I've also given him a vision a vision of you coming and laying hands upon him and restoring his sight and so Ananias responds he's like um that doesn't sound like a good idea I know who Saul is. I know how much evil he's done to your people in Jerusalem. I know that he's been given authority to arrest anyone proclaiming your name, to handcuff them and haul them off. Go to him? That doesn't sound like a good idea. Well, let's take a look at verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Wow. Wow. He's going to suffer. Paul, Saul is going to suffer. And that suffering is not punishment. That suffering is he's going to now walk the path of Jesus. He will be a servant. The way he previously looked at leadership is now completely transformed. It was first with an iron fist, but now it is with suffering. And so Ananias goes. He trusts God. Let's take a look at what happens. Verses 17 and 18. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. The first words that Saul hears from Christian lips are these. Brother, Saul. Ananias calls him brother. He says, you and I are now family. Saul was guilty of so much evil, but what he experienced here is forgiveness and freedom, and he's adopted into the family. He's a child of God, which now means that he is a brother to Ananias. Enemies, to brothers because of what Jesus has accomplished amazing and then something like scales fall off of his eyes and his sight is restored he rises up and he is baptized he's marked In his new identity he's numbered as part of God's family he's marked with God's promises and then he takes food and he is strengthened he's strengthened for his new mission he is a new creation the old has passed behold the new has come what an incredible conversion right and so for us, I want to think about what, what is that? What is conversion? It's not Paul just adopting some new moral structure, right? If we think about it that way, it feels imperialistic. Here, I've got a new set of morals and a new set of practices, so I want you to abandon your old one because that's wrong and just apply this new one. That is not what is happening here. It's not, hey, I need you to stop living this way and then just add some new behaviors over here. That is not conversion. Conversion is freedom. You see, we have these ideas of what gives us worth, what gives us value. And often they're even good things. For Saul, it was, I'm good at being good. I can follow all the rules. I can check all the boxes. But then if we do that, whatever your version is, if we do that, then we create this burden that we then have to try to live up to. My identity is being this thing or this burden that someone else puts on us. You got to be this to have value, to have worth. But conversion is being freed from those burdens. Conversion is encountering Jesus as the one who can set us free. And so conversion is turning from the burden we put on ourselves or the burdens others put on us and turning to Jesus and trusting in his life, in his death, in his resurrection as the source for our worth. That is freedom. That is good news. And so conversion is becoming a completely new person, a new creation. That's what happens to Saul. He becomes new. Now, how does that happen? Well, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. There it says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All right, so the God of all creation, who created all things out of nothing by the power of his word. In Genesis 1-3, that God said, Let there be light, and there was light. That same God, that same word, by that same power, looks into our hearts and says, let there be light. God must do it. We can't convert ourselves nor anyone else. God must say, let there be light in our hearts. And that's the only way that we can come to know God. It's the only way that we can come to know the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. It's the only way our identity can be transformed. It's the only way we can be healed by our blindness to God. And it's the only way we can realize that we were even blind in the first place. It's the only way we can say, I was blind and now I see. What does that look like? Well, here's the thing. We shouldn't think that it always looks like Paul's experience. If we think about the different conversion experiences through Scripture, they look different. Think of just the, even the disciples, right? You've got guys with Jesus for three years, and it's so many terms, like, you don't get it. You kind of get it. Nope, don't get it. Kind of get it. Nope, don't get it. For three years. And then we have this experience of Saul on the road, hit by light, encounters the living Jesus. So sometimes conversion looks different. I think sometimes we hear certain conversion stories that sound so radical and we think, oh, that's a real conversion story, right? Oh, this guy was like a drug addict and trafficker and living in the gutter and then all of a sudden he embraced Jesus and now he's a pastor, right? We're like, oh, that's a conversion. Man, my conversion story is boring. It doesn't have value like that, but not true. For some, God may say, Let there be light while you are persecuting Christians, while you are doing great evil against others. For some, He may say, Let there be light while you are self destructing, doing all the things that you think will bring you joy, but in reality are tearing you apart. For some, He may say, Let there be light while you're living what you believe to be a good and moral life, trying to earn your way. For some, he may say, let there be light before you can even remember because you grew up in a Christian household. Whatever side of that, whatever extreme of that, the point is this, unless God says, let there be light, you will be blind to him. You may be like Saul's men. I hear something, but I can't see it. And so that tells us this, that, uh, that salvation is miraculous every single time it happens. And every time it happens, it is a work of God. And it also tells us this, no one is too far off too far gone. If you encounter Jesus, if he says, let there be light into your heart, you will be part of God's family. What's the evidence? Maybe you're thinking, I don't know. Have I experienced that? Has God said, let there be light in my heart? Well, I want to give us just a few things to to diagnose that. When God says that, I think one of the things that we'll see is an intimacy with God. Knowing Him, not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him relationally, right? That means I can be offended by things He says, I can not like things uh, that He says, I can wrestle with Him, I can know Him. A second thing that we'll see as evidence is sacrifice. You will be willing to sacrifice because you have a Savior who sacrificed for you, who suffered for you. And when that happens, your selfishness begins to die away. Hell is a place where everyone is completely focused on themselves. All right, so intimacy with God, sacrifice. Uh, a third thing that I think we see in this text is that there will be a desire for community. You are saved into a community of people, and you can only know Jesus in community. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, with uh, one of the members of my church, and he said to me, he goes, "You know, I- I've come to realize something that When I'm far off from God's people, I'm far off from God. I said, yes, that is 100% right. You will desire community. And I think one of the other things that we should be looking for is the death to the Pharisee in each of us. I had another guy that I was just talking with this last week and he asked me, he said, Dan, how do I get my kid to obey? Can anybody relate to that question? How can I get my kid to obey? Because I give him rules, I give him consequences, and it's just not working. I said, okay, that's interesting. Guess what you're giving him? All law. The Pharisee way is to force. You know what? I will force good behavior, but that's not grace, is it? And so I ask my friend, has your child experienced grace and mercy from you? Are you just shepherding behavior or are you shepherding that child's heart? When you dole out consequence, is it to restore them to pray with them, to embrace them, and say, you are reconciled back to the family because you've repented. That's how you shepherd a heart. Maybe you can relate to that in parenting. Maybe you can relate to it at work. If you have employees, how do you get them to do what you want? Do you, are you a Pharisee? I will force my way. I will demand behavior. How do you operate with uh, social issues? on uh, social media, right? I'm going to force this. I'm going to hammer down the truth. Are you a Pharisee or are you converted? Because here's what the converted person wants. They want a transformed heart. And they know because they've experienced it, you can't transform someone's heart. And so you pray, I need my child, my coworker, my neighbors, my community to experience Jesus only then will I see transformation, conversion. And that is our mission. That's why we're here. And so at the way we're in this together, right? You're not alone in this. And so we have to remind each other and encourage each other and come back week after week to hear it over and over because we forget almost by the parking lot sometimes, don't we? So that's why community is so important. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray, church. Almighty God, we give you thanks for this incredible story of conversion and for the reminder that conversion is always miraculous. It is always, Lord, you saying, let there be light in a heart. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for the light that you've shown in our hearts. And Lord, I pray for, uh, for anyone here who's longing for peace, who's longing for eliminating the burden of living up to their own constructed value or uh, the worth uh, that someone else places on them, the burdens of those. Lord, would you free us from those burdens? It can only happen by knowing Jesus Christ, by encountering him, by colliding with him, just as Paul did, just as Saul did on the road to Damascus. And so, Lord, help us to live the life of transformation that can only happen empowered by your spirit at work in us. And Lord, help us to do it together as a community so the world might encounter you through us. We ask it in the name of Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.